The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Well, this uh, session this morning is talking about family and community. And uh, one of the things that we've been doing uh, throughout the week is, in some respects, critiquing uh, what's going on in the state. We've critiqued a little bit, as Randy pointed out, uh, some of the ideas of state welfare. Uh, we've uh, addressed some of the uh, issues and problems that we see. And what I want to do in part in this session is talk a little bit about God's solution or God's alternative to, uh, as we said yesterday, you can't find uh, fight something with nothing. And so What we've actually done culturally is we've replaced many of the functions of the family with the uh, new integrating concept of the state. But actually God's solution to many of the social challenges uh, is the family, community and property. So those are some of the things we're going to be discussing in this session this morning. Before we get into that, I want to read to us again a few verses from Psalm 119. So if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Psalm 119 uh, and reading from verse uh, 41. Reading from verse 41. It's important to be reminded about the significance and role of the law of God if we're going to apply what God's word says about uh, the family. This is what... The psalmist writes, May your loving kindness also come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your word. So I will have an answer for him who reproaches me, for I trust in your word. And do not take the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for I wait for your ordinances. So I will keep your law continually forever and ever. What's the result? Verse 45, and I will walk at liberty, for I seek your precepts. And I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be ashamed. I shall delight in your commandments, which I love. And I shall lift up my hands to your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. One of the things I regularly pray for in my own life is the kind of love for God's ordinances, God's statutes, God's laws, which the psalmist is able to speak about. Now, in the uh, historical context in which we currently live, uh, a culture negligent of God's law, G.K. Chesterton spoke these prophetic words which are proving very accurate in our time. If men will not be governed by the Ten Commandments, They shall be governed by 10,000 commandments. If men will not be governed by the Ten Commandments, they shall be governed by 10,000 commandments. And it's, I think, broadly true that as a church we have been uh, increasingly governed by the spirit of the age. We've succumbed to a liberalizing agenda in the life of the church and the Christian community. We're being governed by the 10,000 commandments because we've not been governed by God's law. And yet this is something that uh, the church from the very early period recognized was going to be critical to its life and future, that God's law should govern it. 
One of the uh, most significant of the church fathers uh, that you've already heard about this week was St. Augustine. And he uh, wrote a series of treaties against the Pelagians. Many of the, um, much of the work of the Christian apologists, by the way, in the, in the life of the early church, wasn't always directed towards uh, non-believers and skeptics. Some of it was, but much of it was actually dealing with conflicts within the life of the church itself. Much of the work of Christian apologists was written against heretical teachings in the life of the church. One such group was the Pelagians. One of the things the Pelagians said was that we don't need the law of God. We don't need to be uh, concerned with God's law. And Augustine was concerned to refute this uh, heresy. Uh, This is what he said. Surely no one will doubt, by the way, the Pelagians, one of the reasons they refuted the need for God's law is because they didn't really believe that man was truly fallen and in a, in a, in a state of uh, total depravity. That man was really good enough, he could work his way up. Uh, he wasn't uh, in a condition of total ruin. Augustine rejected that. This is what he says. Surely no one will doubt that God's law was necessary, not just for the people of that time, that's of the Old Testament, but is also necessary for us today for the right ordering of our life. True enough, Christ took away from us the crushing yoke of many ceremonies so that we are not circumcised according to the flesh. We do not sacrifice victims from the cattle. We do not rest even from necessary works on the Sabbath, although we keep the pattern of the seven-day week and other such things. We keep these laws in a spiritual sense. The shadowy symbols have been removed and we see them in the light of the realities they signified. Yet who can say that Christians ought not to keep the commands which tell us to serve the one God with religious obedience, not to worship an idol, not to take the Lord's name in vain, to honor one's parents, not to commit adulteries, murders, thefts, false witness, not to covet another man's wife or anything at all that belongs to another. Who is so ungodly as to say that he does not keep those precepts of the law because he is a Christian and stands not under law but under grace. So Augustine uh, recognized that this was going to be a potential and was a problem in the life of the church. People saying, well, Jesus has saved me now. I'm, I'm under grace. I don't need to worry about the requirements of the law. Augustine goes on to tell the Pelagians in this treaty that Christ has not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Here are his words again. This is Augustine. If I had been um, more diligent, like Dr. Masson, I would have had these on a handout for you. But what I'm going to do, all of you, I'm going to, I have a new book coming out this year called The Mission of God, which deals with all of this. I'm going to send all of you a free copy of that book. If we have your address, the EACC will gift you that book. At some point this year, uh, you'll all receive a copy. All of this uh, material I've taught you this week is in there. This is what Augustine says. He says, it is quite clear that the New Testament leaves no doubt on the matter. What are the law and the prophets that Christ came not to destroy but to fulfill? It was the law given by Moses, which through Jesus Christ says, he wrote of me. John 5, 46. For undoubtedly, this is the law that was added that sin might abound. Words which you often, he's talking to the Pelagians, ignorantly quote, quote, as a reproach to the law. Read what is there said of the law. The law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Was then what is good made death to me? God forbid. 
But sin, that it might appear as sin, produced death in me by what is good. That's quoting Romans 7, 12 through 13. Augustine goes on. The intent was that, being thus humbled, they might learn that only by grace through faith could they be set free from subjection to the law as transgressors and be reconciled to the law as righteous people. So the righteousness of the same law is fulfilled by the grace of the Spirit in those who learn from Christ to be meek and lowly in heart, for Christ came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. So Augustine is pointing out what the writer of Hebrews points out in, in uh, Hebrews 8, which is a citation from Jeremiah 33, that the Spirit of God is at work in us now to reconcile us to the righteousness of the law. The same law is being fulfilled now in us through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's the nature of the new covenant. And for Augustine, the law wasn't just restricted to the Ten Commandments. He wasn't just saying, well, keep God's top ten. He saw these as a summary of God's commandments. Uh, the law, in fact, encompassed all the law and the prophets. In fact, Augustine cites specifically the case law. He says this. But are we, he says to the Pelagians, but are we therefore to say when the law commands that whoever finds another man's property of any kind should return it to him, the owner, that this has no relevance to us? And the law has many other like things teaching people to live godly and upright lives. So Augustine helped the early church to understand there's no antagonism between law and grace in our lives. We have to search out the law to understand what it means to live a righteous life. And this is what the reformers picked up. The reformed church in the history of uh, Christendom in particular, Calvin, Bucer, Beezer, Zwingli, Knox. They took God's law and they exposited the law for the church and specifically for the family. David Hall, commenting on the contribution of Calvinism in particular, he says, such a fundamentally positive view of God's law would become a distinctive ethical contribution of Calvin. And Calvin had looked to Augustine. Now, one of the critical things that we find in God's law in the Old Testament, in the prophets, and in the New Testament is legislation with respect to the family, teaching with respect to the family, community and property so isn't it enough for us as god's people to say well look what the world is doing wrong look at the mess that they're making we have to be able to say um what is it that we're doing right what has the church got to contribute what have we got to offer that is going to correct some of these things now turn with me to ephesians chapter 5 if you have a bible I don't know why all these lawless people aren't coming to my session today. They didn't want to know about the family. Sorry, Ephesians chapter 6, I beg your pardon. Ephesians 6, we can rebuke them afterward. <laughs> Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. We have um, some of Paul's teaching about the family which is drawn directly from Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 16. Now, I recognize that as one of my um, uh, parishioners from um, Westminster, Greg has pointed out this, this week that we haven't had a great deal of time to exposit the law. We've been talking in 
um, fairly general terms. And we, and we can't get into all of the detail today, but Paul deals with Ephesians, uh, in Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, and some aspects of the law from Deuteronomy chapter 5. And this is what we read. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise. So Paul is saying, attached to this commandment about the honoring of the family of parents, there's a promise attached to it. What is that? So that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. So if you want to live long and prosper, Paul says, you need to honor the family. Honor what God says about the family. He goes on, fathers do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And he goes on to give uh, instructions to servants in uh, the house and uh, various other instructions to the family and the community, which we won't go into, we won't talk about now. But there are several promises given to the family for obedience to God's word. And uh, one of them is restated here by Paul. There is blessing, this one promise. We can't choose all of those blessings, but we're told there will be blessing on the family and the community. And that the general pattern would also be health and life to those who honour the family. Interestingly enough, uh, a week or so ago I was speaking in Edmonton to uh, doctors and surgeons, and one of the things that was under discussion at that conference was the cost to the healthcare system today of the broken family. And, the, uh, and where the family is, is derelict, multiple health problems cost the state a fortune. It, it, it adds up uh, to, well, in, for example, a study in the UK showed that the combined effects of uh, obesity, alcohol abuse, and drug abuse uh, did not even approach the cost of the breakdown of the family to the health system. So the church, as well, is an extension of the family in that the church is made up of what? Families. The church is made up of families. And the church receives similar blessings for faithfulness and similar judgments for faithlessness. The other aspect of this is if you want to understand uh, why the focused attack in our culture has been against the family, the surest way to destroy the church is to destroy the family. And that's actually what's happened. That's why we've had this preponderance of uh, roughly three women to one man on average in the church today. As the family has been undermined, the church has been undermined. And as you undermine the church, of course, you undermine Christian marriage because women in the church can't find godly husbands. That'll be part of my discussion later. <laughs> if you're looking for a husband, we've got more men in Westminster Chapel than, than, than women. So. <laughs> Sign up. Hi, we're in downtown Toronto in Hyde Park. Come and join us. So as individuals and as a church, as we obey the word of God, what we're seeking is the transformation of people's lives, families, and therefore, of course, culture to glorify God. Uh, and the transformation and renewal of society in scripture, in terms of the gospel and the salvation which Christ offers, in terms of the kingdom of God, is worked out in the life of the family. Now, that's not just for married people, because if we're single, we're still part of a family. Uh, and when we talk about the family, it's important to remember that we uh, recognize, I recognize as a pastor especially, that 
Many of us don't come from ideal families. And none of us have perfect parents. I come from a wonderful family. I have great parents. But I see myself repeating some of the mistakes of my own parents in my own parenting. Sometimes I even hear them in myself and I panic. Because none of us have perfect parents. None of us have a perfect family. That's why God gives specific instructions to the family. And if we've had a bad model in the family, it doesn't mean we should reject it. It means we should be asking God to restore in us a sense of what true fatherhood is, true motherhood, true parenting, what family life is really about. And it's very important for us as Christians, especially when we develop the the critical faculty and identify what the problems are out there with the humanistic worldview, that we we are reminded that true transformation and true reform doesn't begin out there. Sometimes we're very taken up with critiquing everything that's going on out there, but actually not beginning with ourselves. One social commentator has put it very well. He says, true reform begins with regeneration and then the submission of the believer to the whole, to the whole word of God. Pretenders to reform want to reform the world by beginning with their opponents, with any and everyone save themselves. So we do have to watch against the Pharisaic tendency to say, well, we'll begin reform with everybody else, not us, rather than starting with ourselves. Okay, so if we begin with ourselves and the family, let's take a look at the basic powers in society. God's law actually gives the three basic powers in society, the most influential ones, to the family. The first of these powers is the control of children. We've just read Ephesians 6, citing Deuteronomy 5. Uh, Sorry, Deuteronomy 6. We also have... um, Turn to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs, by the way, is a book that you should acquaint yourself with constantly. Proverbs is a... In the, the wisdom literature, is an exposition of the law. That's what it is. It's, it's the teaching of the law in proverbial form. Proverbs 1.8 tells us, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, do not forsake your mother's teaching. The book, whole book of Proverbs is a father's teaching to his son. Instructing him in the way of life, as he exposits and expounds the law in ways that hopefully he will, his son will remember. Hebrews 12, verses 7 through 10, talks about the role of uh, the father parenting in the life of the child. Jesus speaks of the seriousness of cursing and assaulting parents as a criminal act in Mark 7 and Matthew 15. So the first basic power in society is the control of children and and that power is given not to the state, it's given to the family. To guard, to guide, uh, to steer the life of a child to be the source of discipline and education in children's lives. To control children is critical. Why? Because the control of children, whoever controls them, governs the shape of the future. That's why the role of education, for example, is so important to the humanistic state. 
Because they recognize that if you shape the life of a child, you shape the, the course of the future. You determine the course of the future. But in Scripture, the control of children is given to the family for God's ordained future. Now, the modern state, through its educational strategies, is often trying to... It's gone beyond often now. It is trying to alienate children from their parents. Religiously, generationally, ethically. Did you know that uh, the surveys now vary between 70% and 85%, but that in terms of Christian homes in North America, between... Uh, 75 and 70 and 85% of our children in Christian homes in North America have lost their faith by the age of 23. Most, that's by the end of university, most before they leave high school. We're not doing a good job at retaining our own children in the faith. If we just retained the next generation, we'd be, the church would be a great deal better off. So that first responsibility there is the basic power of the control of children. To show you the degree to which that control has been lost, it's legal in Canada for a child, a young girl, to be at school, tell one of her teachers that she's become pregnant, be taken to an abortion clinic, have an abortion without the parents ever being told. Did you know that? The alteration of the thinking of children in our time has led to what sociologists call the generation gap. They say that a cultural generation is generated every seven years. A cultural generation. This is supposed to produce this alienation, and it accelerates the sense of alienation as children are told that they have to challenge their parents' authority in their homes. This is what the TDSB tells, that what tells uh, the children this is what they're supposed to do, to challenge their parents' attitudes. So the first and basic Responsibility of the family is the control of children. And that is a power in society. That's why there is such a focus on education today. The second basic power given in scripture to the family is the control of property. Money is property, by the way. You, can, you change money, uh, simply stands for, represents property. So you can exchange your coins or your paper for property. By a house, by clothes, by food. Okay, so in the past, we used to exchange very often property as money. And in fact, where economies are collapsing in places like Greece today, actually a market of exchange of goods is uh, becoming prominent again. Where currencies are failing, often actual goods markets are uh, uh, function in exchange, markets of exchange of, of goods. So property and money, when I say that, I'm talking about one and the same thing. In scripture, land is family land. Property is family property. I'll touch on the third power, which is related to this in just a moment. But in the Bible, property is given to the family. That's why there are laws against stealing, coveting. Even the, 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 the intention to uh, have somebody else's property is forbidden in God's law. The father could not dispossess legitimate children and wife. And actually, biblical law, I think I mentioned earlier this week, was uh, largely written into, West, into the Western legal tradition through Theodora, who, from being a sexual slave from childhood after she was sold into slavery after her father died, becomes empress of Rome 
and a marvellous Christian. The issue of the family's control of property is so important in the Bible. Are you familiar with the account of Naboth's vineyard in Scripture? Where King Ahab decides that Naboth's vineyard is kind of taking up part of his view and he would really like to, from the palace, and he'd like to possess it. So he seizes the land illegally. And God judges him for it. So the state sought to seize family land, and the king comes under the judgment of God for it. Jezebel, his wife, says, just take it. You're the king. Just take his land. One of the things that uh, I think IJM is coming in today, aren't they? One of the things that they do is um, advocate for uh, property rights where land is being seized illegally in different parts of the world. So property in scripture is tied to the family. Increasingly, legislators have been trying to alter this, usually in the context of taxation, but still, basically, in the law, the control of wealth, like the control of children, is given to the family. And because property is tied to the family, the source of production is tied to the family. Marxism is an attempt to subvert that. Marxism wants to tie production to the state. That's the whole idea of communism is the state seizure of all land to tie production to the state, not the family, not the private family. God's law is the opposite of that. That's why Marxism is atheistic, by the way, and repudiates God and his law. The third power given to the family is the power of inheritance. Control of children, the control of property, and the power of inheritance. I read, I think, yesterday, Numbers 27 in terms of some of the laws of inheritance in the Bible. You can read some of the laws of inheritance there. They're scattered all over Scripture, but there's a very significant passage there. Proverbs 13.22 says this, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. A good man leaves an inheritance, not debts, <laughs> to his children's children. And that's what God's word requires, that we leave an inheritance to our children. The eldest godly child in biblical law, the eldest godly child, is to receive a double portion of the inheritance. Why? <clears throat> Sometimes we've chafed against that idea in scripture. The, the children get an inheritance, but the eldest godly child is to get, that is a non-delinquent child is to get a double portion of the inheritance and the reason for that is that they are charged with the care of their parents so the eldest child needs more resources than the other children because the eldest child is responsible for caring for their parents not the state what do we do with our parents today we give them to the state to look after you see how steadily the prerogatives of the family have been surrendered by the church and usurped by the state. My parents live in my house. Now, I, they, they're downstairs. And I keep the door shut. <laughs> now, I, when my parents came back from the, the mission field, uh, there was no, they were there for 15 years in Pakistan. They had no big pension. They had no uh, wealth. A uh, small amount of money. If they'd gone back to the UK, they'd have been, ended up in a mortgage situation in their late 60s. 
So, as the eldest godly child in my family, the eldest responsible son, I have one elder brother, uh, I took my parents into my home and I renovated my home so that they have a private uh, apartment in the basement of my house with their own separate ability to live. And I care for them, I financially provide for them. Now, I don't say that to brag, I'm saying it because I was trying to take the word of God seriously. That I am responsible before the Lord now. I didn't see the double portion, but that doesn't matter. Uh, for, the, for, the, for the care of my parents. And that Jesus affirms this law. Again, Mark 7, if you read Mark 7, 10 through 13, the Pharisees were trying to find a way around the responsibility for care for the parents. They were saying, look, if you bring some special tithes to the temple, you don't have to look after your parents. And Jesus says, by this and many such other traditions, you set at naught, you seek to nullify the law of God. So laws of inheritance are given to us in Scripture. Now, in Canada right now, uh, we have managed to preserve to, uh, in large measure, the laws of inheritance insofar as the state does not seize your inheritance. I, don't, I think I may have mentioned earlier on that that's not true in, in, in my home country or my previous home country, England. The state in England, after a pitifully low tax-free ceiling, will seize 40% of your assets that your parents are trying to leave you. 40%! What's the state saying? The state is saying they're the elder brother. They will receive a double portion of the inheritance. Why? Because they say, well, we've taken over the responsibility for care for parents, charity, welfare, all these things. So we're taking a double portion. Most families have to sell their estates immediately just to pay the taxes. This is actually state-sanctioned theft on a grand scale. I don't think there's any more iniquitous tax than inheritance tax. It is the legislation of sin on a grand scale. It is confiscation on a grand scale. And it's designed specifically to strip the family of property, of power, and to enrich the bureaucracy of the state, which sees itself as the new provider of security from cradle to grave. The state sees itself today as the new integrating concept, the new family and the new source of provision. And that's why it believes it has a right to your money and to claims ownership of your property. Property tax is a claim to ownership. You actually live at the behest of the state. You live at the state's permission. If you actually examine a property law today in Canada... You don't really own your property. You're essentially on a lease from the state. They can exercise the right of eminent domain over your property. Just seize it from you. But critically, in the history of the family, the family is the most important welfare agency. Think about it for a moment. Think about your own life for a moment. Every family usually supports children up until university or even through university. That's a form of welfare. 
How many of you live in your parents' house? A few of you. Right? That's a form of welfare. It's a form of provision through the family. All that the family does for itself is a form of welfare. If the family stopped doing for children what the family does, can you imagine the cost to the state? We're seeing it as the family has been collapsing. Can you imagine the costs? Staggering. The responsibility in Scripture for the nurture of children, care for the old, of relatives, parents, all given to the family, means that the family's power in society is absolutely staggering. That's why it must be broken down for a new social order to be established. The family is the first school, the first government, the first vocation of every human being. Subsidies come to couples through the family. When I got married, my in-laws helped my wife and I, shortly thereafter, buy our first home with a considerable subsidy because they wanted to help us. Uh, we, we are the providers of their only grandchildren. Okay? So they wanted to help us establish a home. So they gave us some money to uh, get established in our first house. Tithes and offerings and charity comes from the family. Where's the church going to get the tithe if it doesn't come from the family? That's why if you attack the family and you destroy it, you destroy the Christian church. So I want to focus now, having discussed the three uh, primary powers of the family. I want to discuss now in this last section the family and the tithe. The family and the tithe. I've mentioned the tithe in passing. I haven't really talked about it in any detail. But this is critical if we're going to see a full-orbed Christian response to the challenge of our cultural moment. And since you're, many of you are going to be rich lawyers and doctors and stuff, it's good to talk to you now about the tithe and encourage you to join Westminster as soon as possible, okay? So, with these three basic powers given by God's law, comes the requirement, all these blessings that come to the family, comes the requirement that the family use its resources to the glory of God. And part of that is the tithe. We're all part of families as believers, we're part of the family of God, and... In order to recover a truly Christian view, a fully biblical view of the family, it's not just education, it's not just the uh, sexuality, marriage, social responsibility, all these things are critically important. If we're going to recover all of those, we can talk about them in isolation, but in order to recover a Christian view of those things, we cannot do so without the capital, the kingdom resource to promote Christian health. Christian welfare, Christian education, Christian vision of marriage. It requires capital. For you to be here required somebody's capital, didn't it? It's something like, I don't know, never mind, you don't need to know what it costs you to be here, but it's not cheap, okay? And that requires somebody, so for you to be equipped and trained in these things, it required a kingdom capital to be invested for you to be here. Okay? In North America, we are dismayed that the family is collapsing, pornography is everywhere, legislation of immorality, the church being pushed and marginalized, health and welfare being taken from the church, and so on. But only 5% of North American Christians tithe. 
So, in some respects, where this church steps back, the state does step in. And this has been part of the problem. We've spent a lot of time as Christians in North America in the past 50 years, especially since the Second World War, the last 60 years, straining at gnats and swallowing camels. Straining at gnats is things like focusing our attention on whether there's drums in church. Whether somebody's got uh, a problem with chewing gum. Whether their hair's a bit longer than the standard regulation. Whether they're drinking beer. And these have become the marks of evangelical orthodoxy. Or they certainly were. And then you get twits like Tony Campola. Maybe we should let that start from the tape. But uh, <laughs> what, a lot of these new church, you know, aren't we cool movements are about, oh, I can say, sh- I can swear. Right? During a sermon, oh, aren't I cool? Because people, the church has focused on Pharisaic things. Whether somebody lets the, you know, the word S-H-I-T slip on the occasion, or whether they drink beer, or whether, they're, or whether they've got an earring in. Those are almost total irrelevancies. The law of God has minimal things to say. Minimal things to say about, beyond not being drunk, about the question of drink. But it has a great deal to say about justice and mercy and caring for our parents. Interesting, isn't it, as well, how you have American preachers, North American preachers, who will spend a great deal of time discussing hair length and drinking and so on. Don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with girls that do. And uh, they weigh 300 pounds. And they're not interested in talking about obesity. Or gluttony. Right, so they'll talk endlessly about the end times while they get incredibly fat. And these are. That's true. Because we have strained at gnats and we've swallowed camels. And that's why Jesus says, You should have brought your mint and your, your, your special tithing of the spices. You're so punctilious. He said to the Pharisees about making sure that even a tenth of your spice is tithe, but you've neglected the weighty matters of the Lord. Justice, mercy. The weighty matters. Giving to God is one of the weightiest matters of Scripture in the law of God. For this very good reason that without the tithe, how can we practice justice and mercy? How can we be faithful in our actions towards God? You see, the family is God's trustee. We're stewards as families of God's resources, of God's world. We are the, the biblical family is the trustee family. As a, as a father, I'm entrusted. And I think it was uh, Russell Brown yesterday who was talking about trust law and how this continues in our law. The, the family is the trustee of God's resources. Tithing is part of the Christian view of life and reality that's concerned, above all, with faith. And the tithe expresses our faith and trust in God. The basic premise of the tithe is found in Deuteronomy 10, verse 14. This is what we read. Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, also the earth with all that is in it. That's the first premise of the tithe. Everything is God's. 
You're a trustee. God's appointed you a trustee. But that's just it. You're a trustee. You're not the absolute owner. And this is critically important for us to understand. In verse 18, this is what uh, Deuteronomy 10 says. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. Therefore, love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. What's God's concern there? With the family. The fatherless. The orphan. The stranger. It's the issue of provision here for the family by the family of God. Because the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, he asks that a small portion of what is his, that he has entrusted to us, be given to him for the extension of his righteousness, his justice, his kingdom. The tithe is essentially the principle of the first fruits in the law, and it's related to the Sabbath. The Sabbath... The rest on a seventh day is a tithe of your time. The, 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 the Sabbath rest represents, giving that, uh, that time to God represents all of our time. It's, the first fruits is indicative of, it symbolizes the whole. Rest on the Sabbath symbolizes that all time is God's. He's in charge of history. And I can rest and rejoice in the Lord. And not be fretting, planning, worrying in the ordinary activities of work that I would normally engage in on the day that I rest, which for me is a Saturday, not because I'm a Seventh-day Adventist, but because I'm working on a Sunday, I'm preaching, I'm counselling, I'm busy, that's not, that's not rest for me. Uh, so I'm not a Sabbatarian in the, in, the, in the Westminster Confession sense, that's another discussion, we won't get into that now. But just as the, the Sabbath is a tithe of our time, uh, the tithe is the first fruits. This is what the Apostle Paul says in, in, in Romans eleven sixteen, where the first fruits represents the totality. He says, for if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So in one sense, the tithe is like God's tax. But it's a tax that doesn't work for our impoverishment, it works for our blessing. It's, it's God's right. The tithe is then paid not to the state. Actually, it's not even paid to the church. The Bible says the tithe is unto the Lord. Now, like the Levites who handled the tithe, it's most often administered by the church... Uh, most pastors don't like it too much when I discuss this point, but it's actually not to the church. You don't tithe. This part of the problem with giving today is that what generally happens is people are pressed or told they need to give because there's a new building project or there's this project or we're putting a gym on the building or we're doing this or we're doing that, and people you know, please give. But they're not actually given the broader understanding of what the tithe really means. And they're told to give the tithe to the church. And then they think, then they can feel that like they're like they're being um, badgered because it's give the church your money. No, that's not what the tithe is. The tithe is rendered to the Lord. Now the church usually administrates that tithe on our behalf for all of the kingdom purposes that God has for it. 
In the non-monetary economy of the Hebrew nation, the tithe was given in livestock and grain. In the Roman world, it could have been paid in salt. In fact, in North America, we still have relics of the old tithing barns where farmers would, bring, would literally bring grain and uh, uh, livestock to a tithing barn for the churches. The tithe is 10% uh, of our increase. I'll discuss that in just a second. Uh, but there are special tithes as well that are not uh, always every year. There's tithes for celebration. There's a poor tithe. So actually the tithe in total adds up to around 15% of one's increase on our assets. You tithe from the fruit of your trees, not the trees. So you don't tithe the value of your house. Uh, you don't, uh, uh, you don't uh, uh, tithe the value of your car. You don't tithe your assets. You tithe the increase on your assets, your income. One of the special tithes in Scripture in Deuteronomy 14, 28-29 is the poor tithe for the stranger, the fatherless, the widow. A special tithe that is set aside for people in particular need. And the outcome of a doctrine of faithfulness to the tithe, as the Lord declares here, is that God, that the Lord your God may bless you, this is Deuteronomy 14, in all the work of your hands which you do. It's that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands which you do. So the tithe through the family presupposes first private property, can't tithe if you've got no uh, increase on your assets, on your work. It presupposes that it's yours. It presupposes voluntarism. So there is no state agency that punishes failure to tithe. God says, I punish failure to tithe. Most of God's law is punishable only by God. There's only a few things that the state is allowed to punish. You can't coerce the tithe. But God says there's consequences for not tithing and there's blessings for tithing. So there is voluntarism and the tithe furthers community because it's the fatherless, the widow, the alien, health, welfare, education. It furthers community life. It doesn't advance a bureaucracy. It furthers community. Now, historically in Christendom, uh, the two means of social financing have been state taxation with its expensive bureaucracy or the tithe. The first thing, however, that... Uh, we must be mindful of, is that God requires the family, first and foremost, to provide for itself. So we read in scripture, to show that the tithe moves beyond the institutional activities of the church, one of the first things that we're told, in terms of the responsibility of the family, is that the family is its own best welfare agency. Paul tells us that if a man stubbornly refuses to care for his own, his own family with irresponsible impunity, when was the last time you heard a sermon on this text? He has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. If a man, it says, Paul says, does not care for his own and those of his own household, so not just his immediate children, his household, he has denied the faith this is the Apostle Paul. This is not the gospel according to Joe Boone. I'm just, don't shoot the messenger. Okay? He has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. 
Faithfulness to employment is tied in this. St. Paul says, if a man does not work, he shouldn't eat. When was the last time you heard a sermon on that? Now, this presupposes the man is capable of working. So we're not talking about the, those who are disabled, those who are, uh, whether that's through emotional and mental inability or through physical inability. We're not talking about people who are diligently trying to get work and are presently out of work. That's where the church, the tithe, steps in to help those people with short-term loans or gifts. This is what we practice as a church at Westminster. Through a benevolence fund, we administer emergency aid to people. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a good question. Uh, I don't think it's God's best, but I wouldn't condemn the practice in the sense that uh, there are some circumstances, for example, in which the father may be a very good educator and the family, I know homeschool families who have chosen to have the father educate the children. That's work, don't forget. Right? If a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. Well, I think my wife would dispute the idea that she's not working by looking after the kids. Right? In fact, you know, I'm exhausted if I've had them for a day because uh, <laughs> she's gone somewhere. So, you know, that's work. That is real work. I, however, I don't think it's God's best. I don't think it's God's ideal, in part because of what it does to most men in their sense of self-worth. You know, uh, so uh, there are times when it's obviously prudent. If a man's earning power is 35 grand and the wife's earning power is 80 grand and they need to provide for the family, there may need to be some discussion there about what's the most prudent course to take. But I don't think it's ideal. I think there involves um, a reversal of God's best order for the life of the home. And uh, it makes then headship quite a difficult problem in the life of the family. If the, if the wife's earning all the money, and, but her husband is trying to say, well, this is what we need to be doing. It's very difficult for the wife to receive that when she's actually the primary breadwinner and earner. And I know some very bitter women. I know some very bitter women who are the primary breadwinner in their home. They resent their husband for it. So I think there are circumstances as a pastor where I would say, okay, that's prudence in your situation. I think on the whole, there, the biblical pattern would be the man needs to be working outside the home where possible. But work in the home is still work. It's not, you know, he's, if he's got his feet up drinking beer, playing wee, that's one thing. If he's looking after the kids and educating them, that's quite another. Okay? So, it's critical that, why does Paul require men to work? Well, you can't tithe if you don't work. You can't look after your family, you can't provide welfare if you don't work. And if you haven't got a job and you're not gainfully employed, how can you tithe and work towards God's kingdom? So you see there's an interconnectedness between all of these things. God, the creator of all, the giver of every good and perfect gift, requires that we tithe. Now do not think that when you tithe you're giving charity to God. This is one of the problems with people's perception of the whole process. Oh well, you know, I've been really generous to the Lord this month. I, you know, gave him a few bucks. No, you live on God's property... 
You are God's creature. You exist at God's pleasure. You're given the ability to work and live. The health and strength you have is on the basis of God's goodness. You owe God. I owe God in that sense. Now, he doesn't coerce the tithe out of me, but he says, you'll be blessed if you do this. If the family does this, you'll be blessed. If you don't do it, you won't be blessed. The whole book of Malachi, the whole book of Malachi is the social consequences of the failure of the people to tithe. So, we give our first fruits as a symbolic surrender of all things to God. And if he is our king, saviour, redeemer and lord, this will not be a galling burden. It will be our joy and delight. And that's why the scripture says we're told that when we give, we should give with hilarity. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. It means literally hilarious. Somebody who's rejoicing in it. They're rejoicing in the tithe because they know that it's obedience to God and it it blesses the work of God's kingdom and it will return blessing on God's people. The purpose and the effect of our blessing is the establishment of justice and mercy and the victory of our faith. The kingdom of God is not a beggar's agency. And some of us, some ministers make it out like that. Endlessly begging for funds, you know, endless appeals for money. God is no man's beggar. He says, if you want to be blessed, honour the kingdom tithe. If you don't, don't. Simple as that. Paul reminds us in Romans 13, 7, to render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, honour to whom honour. If that's true of civil authority, how much more God? Jesus says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but give to God what belongs to God. And he was holding a Roman coin when he said it. We render to God what belongs to God. You know what? When you give to God what belongs to God, Caesar asks for a lot less. Because all these things that the church is called to do, the state diminishes. That's the history of the West. That's demonstrable in the history of the West. You want to pay less tax? You want to pay 50% roughly now? If you add it all up, of your income to the state? Well, give God his 15%. I say 15 because I'm adding some of those things in there. Study it. It's important. Think about it. Uh, education was all part of it. We can... Deal with some innocent questions. I've just got a couple of minutes left here. Jesus reminds us of the great blessing of giving. What does he say? It is more blessed to give than to receive. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And he reminds us of the cost of discipleship. He says, so likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. We have to say that all that we have, our substance, belong to God. So tithing was and is the key power of God's family and his church family. It's the command of God. The Council of Tours in 567 declared the tithe to be obligatory. And wherever the church has moved into a time of indifference to this requirement of God, it's moved into a time of decline. I really believe that. One of the reasons for our decline... Oh, I've got five minutes. One of the reasons for our decline as a church in our culture, in our society, is directly attributable to our failure to tithe. Because it's meant that not only can we not do the things God's word calls us to do, but it means we've actually invited God's judgment on ourselves. Throughout the Middle Ages and beyond, schools, hospitals, orphanages, churches, relief of the poor, all of this stuff was done by the church through the tithe. 
And we moved into a period of history in the West where the greatest outpouring of Christian financing in the history of the world was seen through the Puritans and the Evangelicals. We are still living off the capital, really, of their investment into the Christian world through the tithe. Let me give you an example from the US. Uh, In 1835, Alexis de Tocqueville, he noticed and noted in his tour of the USA that private associations formed the basic government of the United States. Most of them were Christian tithe agencies. You know, I said to you the other day that charity is government. That's why the Soviet Union made it illegal. It's a form of government. And gratitude is directed then towards God and his church when we are the source of charity and welfare. Glory is given to God. Honour is then given to God. Not only that, but uh, from it wasn't just meeting the needs of believers in the local church, the preaching of the gospel to new immigrants at the seaport, job training given to aliens, children placed in Christian schools, English taught in boarding houses and chapels supported all of these things, missions were created to deal with all kinds of problems. Perhaps the most notorious example in uh, cities like Boston and New York Did any of you ever seen that rather brutal film, Gangs of New York? With, um, what's the actor's name, Scott? Daniel Day-Lewis, thank you. It's a rather brutal film. That's a fairly accurate depiction of what New York was like. Cities like Philadelphia, there was an influx of criminals that were shipped to North America from Europe. So they put all these hardened criminals on ships and said, here, you go to New York, you go to Philadelphia. All these people arrived, what do you think happened? Oh, huge great slums, criminal slums were created. You know what the Tocqueville said when he observed these city slums? He said this, I look upon the size of certain American cities and especially upon the nature of their population as a real danger which threatens the future security of the democratic republics of the new world. And I venture to predict, this is what he said, I predict that they will perish from this circumstance unless the government succeed in creating an armed force which while remaining under the control of the majority of the nation will be independent of the town population and able to repress its excesses. So the Tocqueville said the only way to get America under control with all of these criminal populations is we're going to have to have a large standing army which will repress the population. That didn't happen. Why? Another army took charge of the case. The army of God. (laughs) You're close. The army of God took care of the situation. Garrisons of Christian workers supported by the tithe converted those slum dwellers. Actually, many of them women who went in there. By the 1860s, that ten years after de Tocqueville was writing, these places had been so transformed by the gospel that young lads were used as runners between the major banks. So when you were transporting money, you didn't need an armoured vehicle, secure a corps, whoever it is we use these days, you know, with armed boys with bags of gold would run between the banks. And if they ever fell or dropped the money, men would surround them in a big circle till all the money had been picked up. Today, a trader would rob you on the way. Not in quite the same style, but just through digits on a screen character of men was so changed that these delinquents were reached the poor were cared for we, we look at the problem and we say to ourselves is it transformable it's been done over and over again William Booth did it 
the Salvation Army in England. He wrote a book called In Darkest England and the Way Out. He had terrible opposition from the Darwinists, especially Darwin's bulldog, Huxley. But he saw the state of the slums in London, in England, other great men like George Muller and Charles Spurgeon as well. And Booth wrote a book called In Darkest England and the Way Out. And he said, we get people to become Christians, he said, we mummify them and sit them on a pew. We don't do anything. We don't do anything. And he launched the Salvation Army. Our failure to tithe as Christians then has formed a part of the dereliction of the faith in our time. And our economies will only survive and thrive where honesty and integrity, integrity and just scales have returned to our lives. And that starts with the tithe. Give to God what's God's. Then we'll start seeing justice in our, the economic sphere. What's been the problem of our economic collapse? What's caused it? Immorality. Not a problem with, oh, this banker and that bank. It's the problem of hot, widespread immorality. The, the um, debt crisis, the subprime crisis was a problem of everybody lying to each other. Right? People lying about whether they can afford the mortgage, the guy selling the mortgage lying to the bank that the person really could pay, the bank lying to other financial institutions saying this is good debt, and then a black hole of, of debt builds up in some foreign bank, and then the whole housing market collapses, because everybody's just lying. A market economy only works where you've got integrity, just weights, just measures, that's the requirement of God's law. And we have abdicated our responsibility and calling in this regard. Our tithes and offerings are powerful because they create community, they strengthen the family, and they presuppose private property. If you look at the greatest problem facing our time now, it is to do with the collapse of the family, fatherlessness, the US Coleman Report during the time of President Kennedy, right through to break down Britain a few years ago, show that basically the collapse of the family, fatherlessness, is one of the greatest causes of the social problems we confront today. And we've abdicated that sense of calling. Some of you young ladies here may well be looking for a responsible husband. And want to pursue the blessings of God with respect to family. But we are producing a culture of vogue men. Where the ideal man is George Clooney. Right? What's, what is George? He's a bachelor. You know, he's the sort of playboy bachelor who everybody loves. They want to track what girlfriend, what's his, who's his latest girlfriend, but there's no commitment. There's no manhood there. But these are the model men of our time. Not men who want to commit to be providers, husbands, teachers of their children, tithing to the life of the church. And until we recover a generation of men like that, the church can't recover. Because we cannot actually build godly families and Christian women can't find godly husbands to build godly families so the family the tithe and community they are all intimately related maybe you've never thought about the family in those terms before but this is the reality of our cultural situation today it requires prayer it requires teaching it requires us to be aware of it and to begin to model it first and foremost in our own lives thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.